Hi, it's so good to be here and yeah, I'm just excited about the opportunity of sharing with all of you today. I'm a little bit disappointed as, as I come here to stand in front of you because we've been here a couple of months. Normally we come in the evenings. We've been here in the morning a few times and the way things happen is church kind of happening and then there's this break and then like this door opens at the side and Pastor Albert mysteriously appears with a cup in his hand and I've been sitting there week after week going, I wonder what's back there and I wonder what's in the cup. And then Albert asked me to preach, and I was, finally, I'm going to find out all this information. And then I panicked and sat in the pew. So I still don't know what it's about, but I'm preaching again tonight, so maybe I'll find that out. I'm going to ask you to do something. It's going to be weird. It's going to freak out a lot of you, but most of you don't know me, so that's okay. I'd like you all to stand, and I would like you to move two or three rows forward, because you're all so far away, and I feel like there's this great void between us. Thank you so much. I just want to be close. We're the body of Christ, um, not the bodies of Christ, the head at the front and ligaments far back there. So this is beautiful. I don't think I spit when I preach, but we've got a good chasm here. So you guys are safe. So thank you. Thank you. If you've got a a seat where you've been sitting for the last 40 years and I just made you move, um, I do apologize. And hopefully somebody else warmed the one in front of you for you. I used to do a lot of speaking at churches and schools in South Africa and In the early days, I used to have a fear, like, what if I get to a place and I start speaking and everyone looks at me weird, kind of like a lot of you are right now. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to take a friend with me so that even if everyone else hates me, I'll be fine. And so I want to introduce you to my friend. This is Nobob. Nobob is the world's most famous stuffed dolphin. And the reason I call him Nobob is I was going to call him Bob, but he doesn't Bob. And... So that's why he's called Nobob. And don't worry, he's not real, so you don't need to be scared. Four years ago, I got a much better friend. My wife, Valerie, that I call TBV, the beautiful Val, is up there somewhere. And it's great to have her here. So now I'm not so, so much scared. And I can see some of you looking at me and going, he doesn't look like the kind of pastor we used to. And let me reassure you, you don't look like the kind of congregation I'm used to. So we're kind of on equal footing. Just a little kind of delving into my history so that you can feel a bit more comfortable about me preaching this morning. As you heard, I'm from Africa, and as you know, in Africa, weird things happen. So I'm going to tell you a bit of my story, and this may bring a bit of emotion. Uh, You may feel compelled to cry, and just, it's okay. We're going to be real this morning. Whatever comes is fine. And so I was born into and raised by a family of lions. True story. Can happen. You've already Jungle Book. Anyway, um, so that is my story. I was born into and raised by a family of lions. And then one day, I became a Christian, and God took away my pride. <laughs> you can see we're going to get on well. There's two things I want to share with you before the preach. And if you remember nothing else about the preach, I know my South African accent's a bit weird, so I'll speak slowly for these two points. And hopefully by the time we get going, you'll be into the jive of it. But if you don't remember anything else, remember these two things. The first one is this, God loves you more. Simple but profound, something we easily forget. If you are feeling really far away from God at the moment, if you are feeling like he doesn't answer your prayers, like he just doesn't feel like he's there, if you're angry with God or disappointed because of something he's done or maybe something he hasn't done, then I want you to know this as a profound fact and truth that God loves you more. And maybe there's some people here on the other side of the spectrum, you're feeling completely close to God. You are having amazing times of kind of worship with Him, quiet time, everything's going well. He's speaking deeply into your life and everything's good. Then I want you to know that God loves you more. It is important for us to keep going back to that thing, no matter how big or small 
you are anticipating or seeing or feeling or experiencing the love of God to be right now, it is so much bigger and so much wider and so much greater. And my prayer is that just during this time, God will reveal some of that to us. And then the second one is kind of linked to that. And normally I get people to sing this, but I'm very conscious of time. So I'll save you the embarrassment or the joy for those of you that like to sing. And it goes like this. God is bigger than my box. He's bigger than my theology. He's bigger than my understanding. And he's bigger than me. He's bigger than my box. Each of us, you may not think it, you may not like the idea, but all of us put God into a box. No matter how big or small that is, we've got ideas or perceptions of what God can do, of how God is able to work, of how God speaks, of what is okay for God to do, what is not okay for God to do. God is bigger than that. He's bigger than our theology, our kind of religious, spiritual understanding of Him. He's so much bigger than that, our denominational differences, the things that make us like other churches, the things that keep us different to other churches. God is bigger than that. He's bigger than our understanding and the one we often forget. He's bigger than me. And so if you remember those two things and just live them out this week, that God loves you more and that God is bigger than your box, your theology, your understanding and bigger than you, then I think you'll have an amazing week. Let's just pray. And I just want to invite God to presence himself here with his Holy Spirit this morning. Father, we don't ask you to be here because we know that you are here. Where two or more are gathered, you're there. But we want to experience you. We want to feel you. We want to hear from you. We want to be touched by you. Some of us desperately want to be healed by you. We want to be challenged into living a faith that looks more like the faith you're calling us to. We want to resemble Jesus that little bit more. We want to leave behind us the aroma of Christ, especially amongst those who are perishing. We want to be salt and light where it is needed in an often darkened and desperate world. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to really just make God's presence known and real to us this morning. Speak to us through your word, through the preaching. Let anything I say that is nonsense or ridiculous fall away. Let the truth be held firmly and let us leave having grown a little bit from how we arrived here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And so basically what I want to look at this morning is the topic or the idea of what do you do when there's an obstacle in your path? And I want you to kind of imagine this picture, if it helps you to close your eyes, but if you can do it with your eyes open, that's cool, of you walking kind of along this mountain path, and so there's huge walls up the side, there's not a lot of room to spare, and you're walking along and suddenly there's this giant obstacle in your path. Maybe it's a giant rock, maybe it's a unicorn with the head of a mermaid. Okay, it's not that, that's silly. Um, but imagine this giant rock that has been put in your place. Has anyone here ever experienced that, ever? Life's going along smoothly, it's going well, and then suddenly some big obstacle comes, suddenly life throws you a curveball, suddenly there's, maybe there's sickness, or someone in your family loses a job, or maybe somebody that's close to you dies, or there's a challenge to your faith, or there's a huge opportunity, but it's going to require a lot of change. Anyone? I see a few people nodding. The rest of you just have normal lives where everything goes smoothly. Teach me your secrets. I have a saying that goes like this. If your Christianity is easy, you're doing it wrong. And a good example of that is this book, the Bible, where 90%, if not 100% of the people that we read about in this book have struggles. They come across tough things. They're riddled with doubt. 
they mess up completely horribly. And we can read this book and read stories of almost everyone that has trouble and strife and hard lives. It's very difficult for us to come to the conclusion that our lives need to be simple and straightforward and uncomplicated and comfortable, if we're reading it correctly. The biggest problem that I have with prosperity doctrine, which is that doctrine that kind of, you're going to be fine, you're going to make lots of money, you're going to have lots of things, and God's going to just bless you immensely, is that there's not a huge blueprint for it in the Bible. There's not a lot of examples that we have to follow. The rich young ruler that goes to Jesus leaves disappointed. We have the story of Zacchaeus who ends up giving away half and more of his stuff to all the people that he's wronged. In the story, Jesus tells Lazarus, the poor man, goes to heaven, while the rich man, who remains nameless, ends up in hell. And then Solomon, who amasses great wealth and great stuff and is kind of like the poster boy for prosperity doctrine, he gets to the end of his life and he writes about how it's all completely meaningless, how that is not the answer to life. And so at some stage in your life, things are going to get tough. There are going to be obstacles. And the question is, what do we do then? So back to our story, you're walking down the mountain path, you've got this huge rock in front of you. My question to you is, who put the rock there? And let's have some answers. Who do you think put the rock there? Everyone's nodding now. Everyone's like, don't look at me. Anyone? The enemy? Nature? Sorry? God. I did. Somebody here is owning up to putting a rock in my path? So let me give you a couple of scenarios. The first scenario, scenario A, let's call it, is God put it there. And the point of him putting it there is that he's saying road closed. Turn around. Do not travel this path anymore. The story that comes to mind is the story of Balaam in the Old Testament. Balaam, however you say it. The guy who spoke to his donkey. And his donkey spoke to him, actually. And there's that story of him going to prophesy against the Israelites, and God puts this angel with this huge sword in the way on this thin mountain path, and he can't see it, but the donkey can see it. And so the donkey keeps on smashing him against the sides, and eventually he starts beating the donkey, and the donkey starts speaking to him. And he says, turn around. God has put this obstacle in your path. Do not pass. Scenario B is that God has put the obstacle there, but it's a test. And he's wanting you to break the obstacle down. He's wanting you to move forwards. He's wanting you to chip it away. He's wanting you to climb over it, dig a tunnel under it, whatever it is. The obstacle there is a test. And the story I thought of is the story of Daniel and his friends when they went to Babylon. And there's the time at the beginning where they're training and they decide to eat only vegetables. And the rest of the guys are eating meat and wine and all that kind of thing. And at the end of the time, they are looking a lot healthier and fitter than everyone else. And so there's the sense of God inspiring them, but they had to do the hard work, and they had to do the hard graft, and at the end, they get proved faithful by that. Scenario C is that God put it there, but he wants you to call on him to move it. The example is the Israelites at the Red Sea. Moses lifts up his stick, God parts the ocean. And so the idea that there's this huge obstacle, but I, God, will move it, but I need you to trust me, I need you to have faith in me. And so it starts to look a little bit complicated because those are three different scenarios that require different actions and different responses. How do we know which one it is? But wait, there's more. Scenario D is that the enemy has put the rock in our path. He's blocking the road that you are meant to take. And so we need to remove it ourselves. We need to call on God to remove it. But the enemy is the one that is trying to block the path. 
And then scenario E, which I've called, you were stupid. You did stupid things. The consequences of your stupidity is a giant rock in your path. And so it's kind of a consequence of sin. It might be your sin. It might be somebody else's sin. It might be a few generations ago sin that we are reaping the rewards of or the punishments of. But somebody has done something and it has resulted in this obstacle in your path. And I think it's important for me to quickly sneak this in now because I imagine you're all sitting there just waiting for me to give you the answers and the solutions and provide the way to know which one is which, but I'm not going to do that. And the reason for that, firstly, these obstacles in all five scenarios can look exactly the same. It's not because the obstacle looks like that, it's God doing the test and so I must break through. Or because it looks like that, this is the enemy, so I must push through. In each scenario, it can be exactly the same thing and require a different action or a different response. And the reason I'm not going to tell you the answer is because a lot of the time I don't know. A lot of the time I'm facing this thing and I'm going, okay, God, is this you? Is this the enemy? Is this my stupid? And what do I do? Do I need to see this as a door closed and go somewhere else? Or do I need to see this as a challenge that's put in front of me or a test? Or do I need to see this as an opportunity for you to come down and do something amazing? And so the obstacle can look the same in all situations, but the response is different. And what I am trying to illustrate is that following Jesus is sometimes, actually most of the time, not about a quick formula or an easy answer or a quoted Bible verse. And more of that this evening. I'm going to be preaching a different sermon this evening on dealing with the Bible in context and using it well. But sometimes, I go as far as saying often, that it requires work or struggling or wrestling, or community, to figure out which one of these things is, and to work towards a solution. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And in the meantime, while you're getting there, we're going to look at the story after Elijah is on the mountain with the priests of Baal. And I'm not going to go through that actual story in great length, because I feel like it's a story most of us know. But the brief summary, in case there's somebody that doesn't know it, is that Elijah ends up on this mount, Mount Carmel, with 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and they have this giant test. They make these two altars, and the prophets of Baal call out to their God for the whole day. And they cut themselves, and they dance, and they plead, and they go crazy, and nothing happens. And then Elijah just kneels down or stands to the side, and he says a simple prayer, and God rains fire from heaven. After Elijah has made it a little bit more complicated by kind of pouring a swimming pool of water over his altar just mocking the people that were following the priests of this other religion. And so God rains down fire, burns up his sacrifice, and they go on a killing spree and end up killing 850 of these priests of other religions. So that is the prequel to the story that we're going to look at today. That has just happened. Elijah said a prayer, fire came down from heaven. If you go to chapter 19 of 1 Kings, verse 2, this is what follows. So Jezebel, who was the king's wife, sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So you're Elijah, you've just witnessed fire fall down from heaven. A woman writes you a note, she sends you a little tweet. I'm going to get you. And this is your response. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. 
Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he went to sleep. And in case you think the Bible, this is just a little aside and it's silly, but in case you think the Bible is a sexist book, I think that story kind of demonstrates that it's really not. Like Elijah takes on 850 priests of Baal. One woman says one line and he's running and hiding under a tree and sleeping. So let's read together 1 Kings 19 verse 9 to 14 after Elijah's had a bit of a sleep. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. It's important to remember stories of what God has done and the times that you have experienced Him at work in your life when you get to the valleys, when you get to the times when He's being really quiet, when you're facing the obstacles. It's good to remember back to when you really believed, when you saw Him work powerfully, when He spoke that word in your life, when He brought healing. It's good to remind ourselves of those things. Elijah, remember the other day you saw fire come down from heaven. 850 priests died in a match that was 850 to 1. Oh, and by the way, you outran a chariot after that, just for fun. Remember the work that the Lord has done. Remember the times that He came through. Remember the miracles that He's done in those times when you're facing defeat, when you're facing depression. Because those are the things that will empower you. The second one is that it's important to remember who your God is and what He's capable of. We carry on, verse 15 to 18. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meloha to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. And then in verse 18, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. And so you've got kind of a simple arithmetic sum that Elijah gets horribly wrong. Like he says, the answer is one. I'm the only one left. And God is like, close. You were just out by 7,000. The idea that God has 7,000 people that have not bowed their knees to Baal. God has the backup plan waiting. God has the story in motion. God cares more about his kingdom than we care about his kingdom, which is an important thing for us to remember. Remember who your God is and what he's capable of. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, I have many, but one of them is Ephesians 3.20, which says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, Then all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We serve a God who is able to do immeasurably, uncountably, unfathomably more than all we can ask or imagine. And I wonder sometimes if we as the church are not hoping or imagining too small. We hope for something small and God delivers it and we're not that impressed. God is saying, I'm the God that can do immeasurably more than anything you hope or imagine. You want to see relative peace in your neighborhood. God wants to see your country turned upside down. God's plans are bigger. His kingdom is bigger. We need to get in line with his plans. We need to remember who our God is and what he's capable of in the times when it seems like we need him most. And so often it's in those moments of obstacle or crisis when we need to look back. We need to set our minds back to the times when we can see God's fingerprints all over our lives, when we can see his hand in it, when we can see the work that he's been doing. The Israelites often built altars to do that. An altar was a sign of celebration or remembrance. This is where we crossed the ocean. This is where God won us the battle. So that every time they looked at that altar, it was a reminder of who God is, what he's done before, and what he's able to do. And so the last time, let's go back to that little walk. We're walking along the road. We've got this giant obstacle in our way. What are some of the things we can do? And I've just got four brief things that will help us to work through those. And the first one is that it makes a bit of sense to spend some time trying to figure out the purpose or the origin of the obstacle. For example, don't blame God for something that is a consequence of your stupidity. Don't attribute something to the devil that might be God trying to achieve something. And so be slow to kind of call out the author of an obstacle in your path. Take some time to figure it out. Take some time to really pray and seek God on it. And the second one is part of that. Go to Scripture, go to the Bible, and go to your community. These are resources that God has given us to know how to live life well. Go to the Word of God. What does the Bible say? What is the likelihood that this is from God? What is the likelihood of this being something that the devil is putting in our path? And go to community. Often in those times of desperateness, in the times of valley, I struggle to hear from God. And so call in some people that are doing really well with God, that are really tight, that are hearing God well. Sit together with your community and wrestle together. Get people to pray with you. There's that beautiful story in the Old Testament of the Israelites in this battle with Moses. As long as he holds up his staff, the Israelites are winning, and he gets tired, and his hand drops, and Joshua and, and I'm not sure if it's Caleb or another guy, stand alongside him, and they hold his arms up so that they win the battle, not because of Moses' strength, but because of the strength of community working together. Go to Scripture and go to community. And the third one is be led by the Holy Spirit. And it's so exciting to see these Wednesday meetings that are happening as Albert works through the various gifts of the Spirit. How do we know what the Spirit sounds like? How do we recognize the voice of God? And it's really by spending time with Him. Jesus says, my sheep will recognize my voice. Why will they recognize your voice? Because you're the only voice they've heard. Because you're the voice they've heard regularly, caring for them, caring about them, presenting them with food, rescuing them. The more time we spend with God in Scripture, in community with each other, listening to Him, the more we'll recognize His voice. And so if you're not hearing God's voice, the question is, have you been creating space for it? Have you been spending time in your prayer listening to God, or is it all talking to God and not giving Him the space to answer? And then the fourth one, which I added just before I came up, is be prepared to step out in faith. Are there many times in the Bible where, where trusting God and doing what God wanted looked 
like a sane and reasonable approach to life. A man standing next to an ocean holding up a stick while another army is coming to take over his army. A man having a conversation with a donkey. A man having a conversation with a firing bush. A man climbing out of a boat and stepping onto water. A man giving a lunchbox of food to 12 men and saying, feed these 5,000 with it. When we trust God, he rarely calls us to do things that look sane and normal and not risky. Because otherwise it's not faith. If it's stuff we can do, then often the glory goes to us. The story of Gideon illustrates that, where God takes this huge army and makes it so small so that the people would know when the battle was won that it was God winning the battle. And so be prepared to step out in faith. Be prepared to look foolish if we get it wrong because hopefully you've got the backing of your friends and Christian community that are there to pick you up and dust you off and give you another chance at it. I have another big preach that I do, that in the church, we often have this theory of trust God but have a backup plan. And that isn't faith. And maybe you've all heard the story of the guy hanging off the edge of the cliff. So there's that story of the guy who falls off a cliff and he grabs up and he manages to catch a tree or something with his hand and he shouts out, is there anyone there? And this big booming voice comes, I am God. And he says, God, rescue me. And God says, let go. And he says, God, rescue me. And the voice says, let go. And so he waits for a while and eventually he goes, is anyone else up there? If God is telling you to let go when you're hanging off the edge of a cliff, you can know that it's safe. We need to trust in God. We need to be sure that the voice is God's because there are plenty of other voices in the world telling us to do things that are dangerous and risky and to not do things because they're stupid. But if we hear God on something and it sounds foolish to be able to just trust him at his word and go for it. And the last final bonus point is that even if we get it horribly wrong, there is a God who loves you very much. Much more than you think right now. He's bigger than your box. He's bigger than your theology. He's bigger than your understanding. And thank God he's bigger than us. And he came up with this beautiful verse in, in Romans 8, verse 28, that says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This verse doesn't say that all things are good, but it says in all things, in the good in the bad, in the difficult, in the uncomfortable, in the completely tragic, God works for the good of those who are in him. In all circumstances, God works for the good. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that you will not give us an easy or comfortable Christianity. Often it's what we'd like. It's what we gravitate towards. But by watching the news on TV, by reading a newspaper... By sitting on Facebook for half an hour, we can quickly ascertain that the world doesn't need an easy or comfortable Christianity. It needs people that are willing to live out what we say we believe. And so I pray for the members of Regeneration. I pray for everyone that's here today, regulars or visiting, that you will help us to head towards or chase after a courageous Christianity, one that trusts that either you will give us strength to move obstacles in our path or you will move them yourself or you will let us know that that obstacle has been put there so that we'll turn around and pursue a different path. Help us to be people that take your word seriously, that 
that live in community, that are the people that hold up each other's arms when times are tough and hard. Help us to be real. Help us to be honest about our struggles, that we're not trying to do these things by ourselves. And we thank you that you empower us to do this. Thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to direct us, to guide us, to feed us. Help us to live that out in Jesus' name. Amen.